0: So the uh, topic for the evening is equanimity. Equanimity, um, finding balance in difficult times, or any times. But since we are, I think uh, many people would agree. Would agree in the middle of difficult times, we can have that as part of the the context. Um, And I. I've given talks from time to time on equanimity and, and touched, them, uh, touched the topic uh, peripherally in talks. Um, but it's, it's been coming up for me lately, as I said before the break. Um, I just gave a talk to a, a church group um, here in, in Berkeley. Uh, they wanted to hear about that. Mm and I um I looked at you can uh, you can see um, when you give a talk and it's posted on Dharma Seed, all of these talks are posted on uh, Dharma Seed, which is a really great resource if you haven't checked it out. dharmaseed.org. dot org. And there are thousands and thousands of, of talks uh, by um all the teachers uh, in our community, and many more besides. I have about 600 up there myself. If you want to, <laughs> you'll have enough of me that you can more than you could ever want. But anyway, looking at Dharma Seed, uh, you can see um, how many downloads there are of each of each talk, and you can see the most popular talks: equanimity. I have three talks on equanimity up there that are all, like, in the top 10 or so, or 15. So I, I was looking at that the other day, and I said, oh, oh wow, I, that talk, and then that a couple of years earlier, in a couple of years, and it's it, it just leaped out at me, people are really hungry for balance in their lives and for equanimity. <clears throat> Do you want a little balance in your life? Anybody could use a little balance in their life. In their outward life and in their inner life. Mm. Mm. And um, particularly what uh, what's... Uh, prompted me to have it on my mind in recent times, besides everything going on outside every day. You read the news, and it, it's such a uh, polarized um, um, culture these days. Uh, but on a more personal level, I was also drawn to it, and uh, something that perhaps you can relate to in your own life, but I have, you know, I have lots of uh, people that I care about that I'm uh, close with and I've known for some time, and um, yeah, just dear friends and dear people, and two people who I really care about a lot. One had been feeling um, really disconnected from themselves for some time and going through some, some pain about it. And just in the last, oh, several months, she, she's come back to herself and she's just, it's been so, um, uh, I've been so happy to see this person coming back to life and remembering who she is. And, my, and when I think about it, my heart just just really delights Another person who I also care really uh, very much about is going through um, one of the hardest periods in their life, really struggling uh, because of external circumstances and and how how it's impacting them and these two uh, this little drama inside of me is just so pronounced. I think of one person, oh, that's so wonderful. And I think of the other one, oh, I'm, that's so painful. And of course, because we care about people, we can be affected by them, as I'm sure when somebody in your life is going through a great time, yes. And when somebody else is not, oh. But to have that juxtaposition so powerful, both of them impacting me uh, because of uh, my caring. Uh, So it's been coming up how to hold that all. I mean, that's just a little microcosm for our ongoing task, how to hold it all whether it's people that we care about close to us or our own life circumstances <gasps> fantastic oh no I can't believe that you know and there we are experiencing um, the vicissitudes of life what are called there uh, I'll get to this in a little bit uh, later in the talk the Worldly conditions, the vicissitudes, there are eight worldly conditions that keep us pushed and pulled. Yes, no, yes, no. And that's part of the deal that we're trying to sort out and navigate. Mm. This is sometimes described, this human realm, uh, as, uh, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. You, I'm sure you've you've heard that phrase, a great Taoist phrase. Life is made up of the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. That's what being here, this is what we're asked to not only uh, work with, but come to some kind of inner peace around. And it's said uh, that the human realm is, In one depiction of the Buddhist cosmology, uh, there are uh, six realms of existence. In one depiction, there's the, the hell realm. Not a fun place to be. The hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, the human realm, the what's called the jealous god realm or the titan realm, uh, the asuras, and then the uh, the heaven realm. And um, as good as the heaven realm is, or those higher realms are, the human realm is the best of all six, it is said, if you want to wake up. Because the human realm has both... These joys and sorrows. The heaven realm, you just kind of loll about saying, oh, this is really cool. Hey, I think I'll hang out here for a few eons and, you yeah, know, not a bad place to be, but you're not motivated to wake up. And certainly it's harder in the, in the, uh, the lower realms, but here we have both of these and we have to deal with our pain and suffering, and at the same time learn to open up to all the blessings so that we can find that balance, that place that can hold it all. And it's so um, amazing how sensitive and fragile we are as human beings, how easily we can be impacted by circumstance in a moment, one little exercise that I I, uh, often uh, uh, like to uh, share with people just to see how sensitive our whole system can be. Some of you have done this with me before. I just invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And I'm going to um, say a word. Just one word. And notice your experience. Trouble. Trouble. Notice how it feels in there. Trouble. Any images? Any response in your body? In your mind? In your heart? Trouble. Okay. okay, now I won't leave you here, don't worry. Take a nice deep breath and clear the the board in your mind. And I'll say another word. Kindness. Kindness. Notice any images. Response. How it feels inside. Kindness. Okay, you can open your eyes. Do you notice any difference between the two? Probably. Two words Complete non-sequiturs connected to no story even, just from my mouth traveling through space to your ear and your consciousness creates a whole reaction with it. Now those are just two complete non-connected words and there's all that response. So just think the the thoughts that you keep on repeating of worry or anxiety or fear or regret or of love or of um, gratitude and all the stimulation that you get throughout the day this new input. Now this one, now this one. And you can see why we get exhausted, let alone the intensity of the stimulation when uh, our uh, devices and our uh, taking in of information on a cultural level has the particular um, uh, intentional effect of stimulating us. Mm. And we can be both uh, having our personal life feeling going really well. Um, These days for me, most, most parts of my personal life are really, I feel so incredibly blessed. But I look at the news and there's such sadness at times. You know, climate change. You see that UN report on climate change this week, you know. Hmm, whoa. Sorry, I don't wanna bring you down in my talk, yeah. You know? But you read a report like that or politics or the inequity in our culture. And of course those are the stories that make the headlines. There's all kinds of wonderful, inspiring things that are happening all the time that don't make the headlines. But even if you're going, things are going well in here, out there, oh my goodness, and is it okay for me to feel delight and happiness when there's so much suffering? Or things are going okay around you, but you're hurting inside for some reason. So, How to hold it all. Equanimity is the mental factor that holds it all. A spaciousness, a balance in the midst of all circumstances. There's a a saying, a phrase I love, a heart as wide as the world. It's a, a beautiful image cultivating a heart as wide as the world, a heart that can hold it hold it all. Or as I've mentioned many times, the, uh, the archetypal image of, of Kuan Yin, who is sitting there, the embodiment of compassion, and there she is responding to the cries of the world in her relaxed posture, her royal posture, where there's a, a balance and an ease even as she responds to the suffering around. And equanimity, I've mentioned this before, it's its the, in most, in many, many lists, it's in many lists, and it's always the last quality listed, whether it's the seven factors of enlightenment or the ten paramis or the, Four brahma viharas or the stages of insight it 's always the last uh, the different uh, absorption states because it is the the ultimate holding of all the other qualities in the before it in the list, and when there is that perfect balance of mind and heart, that is the the foundation for true awakening. Mm. And in the Brahma-Viharas, loving-kindness, those are these different divine abodes, loving-kindness and compassion. When loving-kindness turns to suffering, it becomes compassion. When it turns to happiness or joy around us, it becomes joy, sympathetic joy. And equanimity is the the quality that holds all of those so that they they can be experienced in a in a rich way rather than going overboard taking on too much suffering or getting too exhilarated with uh with joy but can hold it and um, and be centered in the midst of it mm-hmm. so um a few comments about equanimity. It's so much about spaciousness, about creating a sense of openness and spaciousness. When the mind gets contracted, we get triggered. That's what getting stressed is all about. But when there can be a kind of spaciousness of heart, then we don't get so disturbed. There's an uh, an image in the Buddhist, uh, that the Buddha gave. He said, um, "If you if you put a teaspoon of salt in a glass of water, and you drink that glass, it's going to be really salty, right?" But if you put a teaspoon of salt into a large pond of water, you won't taste it—not not unpleasant at all. And that's an analogy to the spaciousness of heart and mind that equanimity um, uh, brings us to. <clears throat> So getting a wider perspective is one central element of equanimity. And uh, on a cultural level, a wider perspective means um, seeing the present in a bigger band, bigger spectrum of reality, what the present moment is. You know, we can think of the present moment as just this moment, which ultimately, that's what we're tuning into in our meditation practice. Now there's this moment. Now there's this moment. Now there's this moment. Some people can take the present moment and say, oh, I'm having a really good day today. That's their present moment, how the mind is holding it. Or, I'm having a bummer of a day. Or, this is a pretty good week. You know, or, I'm in a good period right now. Or, I'm in a challenging time right now. And so the mind holds it in different ways where you are in the in your life's trajectory. Equanimity expands things tremendously. The Dalai Lama, for instance, when he talks about how he holds the craziness in our world, he says, well, one way to look at it is world systems come and world systems go. That's the big picture. And he says, as long as we know we're doing the best we can in our part, and we can look back, even if things go terribly in human civilization, world systems come and they go, but we can look back and say, okay, we did it as well as we could. Mm. And when we widen the moment, our smaller perspective is held in a much bigger picture. Our particular drama in this moment in our lives is held in a much uh, bigger frame where we see life as having ups and downs and ups and downs, and rather than thinking, oh my goodness, I'm I'm really stuck now. I'm at the bottom. When you realize, and you hold in that bigger bigger perspective, you realize, oh, this will change, and it will go, I will laugh again, I will smile again, and that will change, I will be sad again, I will go through all of that. And when you see your life in that way, It's not a matter of, uh uh-oh, I'm really stuck now. There's no way out. And we we see that picture and knowing, oh, it gives us a little bit more courage to open up to this moment and seeing, okay, this is a tough one. What can I learn in this experience while it's here? Or this is a great one knowing that things change, oh, let's not miss it. But the more you know and notice and realize that things change, the more you're here for the ride. Instead of thinking you're, the idea is to arrive at some magical destination. Mm. So this truth of impermanence is a huge support for opening up to a uh, perspective of equanimity. I, I mentioned this uh the other week and I'll, I'll repeat it again some of you aren't here. You look at all the 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 great movements in our culture from the abolitionists in 1820 could never happen getting rid of slavery never happen or the women's suffrage movement. I think I mentioned this last week or uh, week before never happen women getting the right to vote or civil rights uh, integration all of those all of these movements they happen over time and from any one slice of reality it seems very very sad and painful but as you know that uh, that line martin luther king is quoted this line uh, a lot he didn't make it up but uh, the, the line uh, the the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And the, the, the originator of that line is um, an abolitionist, Theodore Parker, who was a Unitarian uh, minister in the uh, 18, 18, 19th century. The moral arc of the universe is long, and it bends towards justice. So equanimity sees that bigger picture and knows that my job is to do my part from as much care and love and clarity and commitment as I can, not out of hatred, not out of ill will, but out of commitment and knowing that my part joins many other parts, and uh, there's a a tide that forms the multiplicity of courage Nelson Mandela called it and here's a here's a couple of images about this Thomas Merton wonderful contemplative um, uh, Catholic, he said that an activist has to come to terms with the fact that what is done may ultimately be fruitless, but that you're not doing it solely for the hope of results. He says that you get used to the idea. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate on the value, the rightness the truth of what you do for itself instead of the attachment and impatience with results. And there's a, a Talmudic story that similarly says if the world were ending and you knew that nothing would make a difference, you'd still do what's most aligned with the heart's deepest values. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this and how uh, equanimity really understands this um, principle of how things do change and how people can change and uh, how out of a lot of times our suffering comes um, great lessons and great gifts, uh, one on a personal level, you know, I've, I've shared it here before. A number of years ago, I got really serious about my practice and I lost my joy. Very serious and a really hard place for a while. And out of that, I said, okay, what did the Buddha say about happiness? I am not having a good time here. Okay. And out of that came... A book, Awakening Joy, and a course that I teach. I wouldn't have been motivated if I hadn't lost my joy. I was reading a a couple of, actually, a couple of Supreme Court stories. Not current. Don't worry, not current. A couple that might uh, give you a little bit of inspiration Earl Warren who was the Supreme Court Justice. Before he was the Supreme Court Justice, he was the governor of California during the war, World War II. And he oversaw the internment of Japanese, one of the most shameful um, parts of our country's uh, history, along with slavery, and there's a lot of things to be, that could go in that category, but to put these people who were our citizens and put them in internment camps. And um, it later on haunted him. And when he became chief justice of the Supreme Court, he presided over... Brown versus Board of Education, the, the landmark case of desegregation. And it was his, one could say, penance for all the guilt that he had carried. And he, he talked about this. So out of this came this. Another one that I was just reading, it was just in the Times uh, today, I think it was, was um Hugo Black. You know Hugo Black? How many people know of Justice Hugo Black. Okay. Not two, three hands. Hugo Black was appointed by um FDR uh in uh in the 30s to be on the Supreme Court. Cuz it seemed he was he was going to go along with the New Deal and FDR's programs. It turned out, and it came out, that Hugo Black, in his earlier years, was a member of the KKK. And when it came out, there was all hell to break loose. This came out. After he was, just after he was appointed. And you can imagine, I'm sure you can imagine, it doesn't take much imagination to think of what the um, response was. Uh, He went on radio and talked about it and talked about the fact that, yes, he had been in the KKK. And he, um, it was actually, it was the second most, uh, listened to radio broadcast, uh, of the decade. That was said at some place in this Times article. I forget what the, uh, what the other one was. Um, but Hugo Black served on the Supreme Court for 34 years and became one of the great civil libertarians in Supreme Court history. I'll just share a couple of things. One of his early opinions overturned the murder convictions of four African Americans on the ground that their confessions had been coerced in violation of due process. He wrote the majority opinion, in another case holding that official school prayer in public schools Violates the establishment clause of the first, clause of the first amendment. He wrote another opinion granting indigent criminal defendants the right to counsel. And he wrote for the court in a, a landmark reapportionment case requiring conde- congressional districts to be of equal population. And the list goes on and on. And he's celebrated today as one of the great champions of civil liberties. You never know. You never know. In the Buddhist uh, lore, there is the story of Angulimala. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Angulimala. Uh, If you're not, Angulimala was a a serial killer who, through some confusion and innate propensities, uh, was um, misguided by jealous Students uh, who mis who um, uh, fooled his their common teacher into thinking that Angulimala had been um, uh, committing adultery with the teacher's wife, and Angulimala was a very sincere, devotion, devoted student. This was not uh, anything uh, that was true, but the teacher said okay, to show your, uh, your devotion and your surrender to me, uh, you, will, um, uh, you have to kill a thousand people. And Angulimala, who had these propensities within him, latent propensities, uh, it was prophesied when he was born that uh, it said that he had great violence uh, within him. Uh, and uh, they named him Ahimsa, uh, which is uh, the peaceful one. His parents named him the peaceful one, just to hope steering him in the right direction. But those latent tendencies came out, and he followed his teacher's uh, instructions, and after a while got into it. And there he was, each time he would kill somebody, he was a very big, strong man, each time he killed somebody, he'd take their finger and put it on a necklace. And so Anguli Mala, you know Mala beads, Mala necklace? Anguli is finger. So Anguli Mala was the finger-garlanded one, and he was the scourge scourge of the countryside everybody was afraid of angulimala until the buddha got to him after 999 and he was about to uh, the buddha could ha- had his um his psychic powers and saw that angulimala was going to go for his, uh, his mother, who, had been com- who was coming towards him, and he was going to go for his mother as the thousandth. And the Buddha intervened, and he broke the spell, and Angulimala saw the error of his ways and uh, joined the, mon- the monastic life what have I done? And he joined the monastic life. And the people in, in, the, in the town, in the, the villages, were not happy that the Buddha had him protected by robes. And in fact, when he would go on alms round, they'd stone him. And the Buddha would say, Bear it nobly, Brahmin, bear it nobly. You're working off your karma now. But the story about Angulimala. We'll get back to equanimity in a in a moment. The story about Angulimala is that he ended up being a, a healing force for uh, for women in childbirth, because as he as he was going uh, on his alms round, he saw this woman in distress, in in uh, having a very difficult labor. And uh, he went back to the Buddha and he said, there's this, this woman in great distress. We need to do something and, and send some, somebody to help her. And the Buddha said, you go. And, the, and Angulimala said, me? And he said, yeah. And you say to her, by the, the purity of my heart that I have not committed any acts of of harm, uh, may you be healed. And Angulimala looks at the Buddha and he says, uh, "Do you remember who you're talking to?" And the Buddha says, "Let me clarify it. By the purity in the heart, in your heart, since you've been nobly born." Since you have seen the light, may your childbirth be a healthy one. And then Gulimala Mala followed the orders, goes back to the the woman in childbirth, and she has a a smooth, healthy birth. And these days, uh, women in childbirth in Asia they recite the Angulimala Sutta, the Angulimala Chant. So here he is, the protector and the healer. Things can change. They really can. Amazing Grace, I'm sure you know the story of Amazing Grace, The, the slave trader who woke up I once was lost and now I'm found. So, hello? (laughs) So, to really see that equanimity holds the possibility of change, that things can change. And that goes for us as well. When we're going through our hard time, when we're going through our deepest pains and sorrows, equanimity allows our practice to hold what we're going through in another way. The way I see it, if you see your life within the context of practice, then everything that happens to you is part of your curriculum. Everything that happens to you, if you're learning and you're committed to growing and to waking up, everything is part of your syllabus. And we've all seen this, I'm sure. I often ask this question, you know, the... The teaching that the Buddha says that suffering can lead us to faith. How many people have been moved by their own personal suffering to look for deeper meaning and deeper answers in their life and have been um, impelled to uh, deepen their spiritual life? Anybody have that experience? That's how it works. It's just that while you're in the middle of it, you say, this has to be some terrible mistake, and if I were running the universe, I'd do a much better job than this. But when you look back and you see, oh, if it hadn't have been for that, I wouldn't have learned that. If this hadn't have happened, I wouldn't have understood this or deepened my compassion I was with uh, a friend today who comes and sits here, Kay, uh, Kay Cleave, who's doing a um, a documentary um, that um, about surviving the death of your child, as her her child died uh, at, in her early twenties, of uh, and she talks about the story of um, a drug overdose. And we were talking, and she said uh, that from that, I'd known her since those, those early days, from that, she went through her own pain and her own sorrow and um, somehow processed it. And in the last number of years, she's worked with people, with uh, women particularly, who have lost their own children and interviewed them? She's doing a documentary. That's what we were uh, we were doing today. She uh, she wanted to interview me a little bit on this, doing a documentary of how people recover from their grief and the things that can happen from it. And she created this amazing school in um, Nepal, uh, dedicated to her daughter's memory. And uh it's it's quite extraordinary this and I, I've I've seen videos of the school that she they've been working on for the last uh few years and now it's opened and there are these smiling, beaming children uh in this school that had uh this this village that had no school uh in it. And we were both sitting around saying, well, if it hadn't have been for this that school, and all those beaming kids wouldn't be getting an education. And this documentary that you're doing such a beautiful job on to touch so many people. This is the perspective of equanimity that holds things in, uh, without conclusions, without coming to an end. <clears throat> so we live our life, we do what we do, and we go through what are called the eight worldly conditions or the the eight vicissitudes in the teachings loss and gain praise and blame fame and shame and pleasure and pain. The eight worldly conditions. Sound familiar? And most of us are running away from one and towards another. And as, which is understandable, you don't want to run towards pain. But if you are setting up your life to avoid pain, or avoid loss or avoid blame you will be exhausting yourself because that's just part of the deal here loss and gain you know how do you feel when your team loses you know how do you feel when your mm, candidate loses how do you feel when your investment goes down. Probably different than when your team wins, your candidate wins, and oh, look what happened today in the stock market if you invest in that kind of stuff. Loss and gain. Loss is part of the package. That's why the Buddha says, every day think about the fact that I will become old. I will become sick. I will die. Everything and everyone near and dear to me, I will be separated from. He says, "Think about it every day, not to bum yourself out, but to see, oh, this is part of it. This is this is the deal. Praise and blame. How does it feel when somebody talks sharp to you?" You know, I, I read one study that said that. Uh, If somebody gives, if you have a sharp encounter, a negative encounter with somebody, for most people it takes seven positive encounters to balance that out. Like, you know. How are you? Oh, okay. Hey, you having a good day? Seven times after seven, oh, okay, you kind of come back to your life, to, to life. But for most people we are so at the mercy of of any kind of criticism in our minds. Mm -hmm. You give a talk, sitting up here, I'm I'm not immune to it. Somebody is yawning or looking at their watch. Mm, (laughs) The Buddha in a, a famous uh, story, he was. A lot of people tried to do the Buddha in and were jealous of him and were saying, you know, uh, all kinds of rumors about him. And there's one famous story where these rumors were circulating and they were. Uh, and Ananda uh, went to the Buddha, Ananda, his sidekick, saying, you know, uh, it's getting a little dangerous. People are spreading nasty things about you and about us maybe we should go to another town. And the Buddha says, well, what would happen if we went to the next town? And they started saying those kinds of things. And uh, Ananda said, well, then we go to another town. And, And the Buddha said, no, not so, Ananda. You and I both know what the truth is. We don't need to run away from the truth. And then he gives this lovely teaching. He says, in this world, those who speak much are blamed. Those who speak little are blamed. Those who remain silent are blamed. In this world, no one escapes from blame. Pleasure and pain, anything can happen at any time. Anything can happen at any time. Fame and shame. The stars, the great stars. The the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The tall poppy syndrome. I mentioned it recently here. In in uh, Australia, they have this this uh, uh, this notion. The tall poppy is the one that sticks that sticks out and the one that gets cut down first you know mm. so equanimity how to have balance through it all well one is to see impermanence to see these three characteristics that everything changes and that holding on to changing experience is painful and that we ourselves are this changing experience, but really to tune into impermanence and see things change, this will change. How can I meet this as wisely as possible? And with that, we're also able to let go of our attachments. letting go, to do what you do, as it says in the Bhagavad Gita, to do what you do with as much conviction and then let go of the result. And do everything you can until proven otherwise, but when things don't go your way, ah, okay, and what now? Keeping the company of the wise, this is one of the the, the great instructions that the Buddha has. He says, if you want to develop a quality, hang around people with that quality. Hang around centered people. Hang around people that hold a wider perspective. It rubs off on you. <clears throat> Practicing equanimity formally and just seeing, oh yes, Okay. Everybody has their own journey. The the formal words in the equanimity practice, "Mm, you are owner of your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions or habits or choices, not just on my wishes for you. And that really means that you can't lead somebody's life for them. They have to go through their own lessons, just like you, and to let go of thinking that it's up to you to change the course of their, um, their life. You do what you can to support and help, but at some point you let go of thinking that you can rescue everybody. And mindfulness practice itself is the direct development of equanimity. I was thinking this as we were sitting tonight and there it was so still. It was just so wonderful. And there we were all practicing equanimity because there you were, whether or not you realized it, saying, okay, I'll show up for this moment. Might be a fun moment. Might be a difficult moment. Might be boring. Might be blissful. I'll be here for it. And just in that commitment, that stance, that that practice of just being here for it all, there you are directly opening to the changing nature of experience. Every moment that you're mindful that you're not grasping at the pleasant and you're not pushing away the unpleasant and you're simply here for it all, let me be with this moment and now this. I can be with this too. There's a tremendous empowerment that comes from that that you're developing. So I, I really hope that you keep remembering to see the bigger picture, how things change, that you can open up to whatever it is you've survived them all in the past, you will smile again and laugh again, that you hang out with the company of the wise, and that you see every moment in your practice of mindfulness as developing that equanimity. So, enough words. Uh, just before we we go, any um, any comments? Any questions? Anything that comes to mind? Uh, oh, thanks. Thanks, me. I had a question about what the word equanimity means. When mm. Sorry, yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah. So you said it is equanimity, and you also used the word balance, and I'm wondering if those are two translations of the word that have an equal weight, or is that your um, interpretation to add the word balance? The, um, the word upeka in Pali is this quality of equanimity. And who was it? I was just reading. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as uh, the middle, oops, the middleness. Uh, It's one way that he was thinking of uh, talking about it. But it is, it's all about balance. It's all a question of balance. And I think of equanimity in the seven factors of enlightenment. The three stilling factors are calm, which is a kind of a settled still um stillness and concentration is a focused stillness, and equanimity is a spacious stillness it's here for all the ups and downs and doesn't get uh, overwhelmed or um, uh, ruffled by them and so it's it's not suppressing anything the the near enemy of equanimity is indifference it's the like the the teenager that says, whatever, that's not equanimity. It's, oh, I can open up to this too. So the, the equa, it's like the equal, you can be here for, uh, for the, the, uh, the pleasant and the unpleasant uh, with that same um, centeredness. Anything else? Yeah, Karen. I'm trying to think of a way to put it. Is it, and I think I, from what you've been saying, I think uh-huh. I figured it, it out. Close. The whole time I was wondering, can you hear me now? Is yeah. Okay? The um, The glad game, Pollyanna. The what? The glad game, Pollyanna. Pollyanna. <laughs> so. So I was raised to try to do the Pollyanna thing. And, and I'm getting tonight that, that no wonder it doesn't work <laughs> because it's not really accepting. It's pushing the unpleasantness away, right? Right. The, the equanimity, it, it takes courage to be here with the hard stuff. So equanimity is not namby-pamby kind of thing and, oh, I'll just put a... It's okay. No, equanimity gives you the capacity to be with all the pain and the sorrow. There's no getting around it. If you think, oh, well, I'll just kind of distract myself, it's going to come up and, and bite you anyway. So it takes tremendous courage to say, okay, I'll feel this sadness, I'll feel this loneliness. In, li- in manageable doses, always helps. Not to be overwhelmed, and it's good to know what your capacities are, but to, uh, be able to inoculate yourself. That's why those five reflections, uh, saying, oh, okay, I will, there will be loss in my life. There will be, uh, sickness in my life. And you're getting used to saying, okay, this is part of the deal. And then you can, you're not afraid to open, which allows you to open up to all the goodness in it. So that's, that's the idea. Yeah. Okay, so we'll we'll close with a loving kindness. There, and one last thing. There's a, a a a story. This reminds me of a quick story. This uh, um, this samurai who was very uh, the 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 uh, terror of the countryside, and he'd come into towns and and uh, and uh, Pillage and plunder, and uh, when people heard that he and his warriors were coming, uh, they would flee. and he goes to this one uh, one town. Uh, word gets out that he's that he's coming, and everybody leaves uh, in terror except for the Zen master and the uh, uh, the scout comes back to this fearsome samurai warrior. And he says, uh, everybody has, has fled in, in terror of you except the Zen master is still there in the, uh, in the monastery. And the, the samurai goes up to the, to the monastery and he sees the Zen master sitting very still and centered and he stomps coming up to the Zen master and he says, uh, Do you know who I am? I'm somebody who can take this sword and run it through you without batting an eye. And the Zen master sits and says, And I, sir, am someone who can have that sword run through me without batting an eye. At that point, the samurai bows He's met his match. That's equanimity. <laughs> okay, so let's, uh, let's close. May we learn to hold all of the ups and downs in life with compassion and equanimity. May we see through our fears and confusion and connect with the goodness and wisdom that can hold them all. And may our coming here together ripple out and be of benefit to all beings in all directions, including this wonderful planet that's our home. May all know the highest happiness and peace. Thank you very much for your attention. Have a really good week. Or whatever. And just uh, (laughs) hold it all. (laughs) I wish that for you.